Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. The show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome to another episode of the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, where we delve into the stories that shape our world and enrich our lives. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and we are broadcasting from just outside Washington, D.C. Are you a coffee lover? Do you enjoy the kick of spicy food? Have you ever wondered why these everyday items have such a profound effect on us? Well, you're in for a treat today. We are honored to have Smithsonian Associate Noah Whiteman with us to unravel the mysteries behind the toxins that surround us from the spices in our kitchen to the vices we indulge in. Smithsonian Associate Noah Whiteman will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates. Coming up in the title of his presentation is Nature's Toxins from Spices to Vices. Smithsonian Associate Noah Whiteman is an evolutionary biologist at the University of California at Berkeley and an expert in the origins and impacts of natural toxins. Imagine this. Beneath the surface of your morning coffee bean or that red pepper flake you sprinkle on your pizza lies a complex world of chemicals. These chemicals are not just flavors. They are potent substances that have evolved over millennia. They serve as plant defenses against predators, and yet we humans have found ways to use and sometimes abuse all of this for our benefit. Smithsonian associate Noah Whiteman's groundbreaking research combines evolution, chemistry, and neuroscience to explain why and how these toxins exist. We'll learn from Dr. Noah Whiteman today about the co-evolutionary arms race between plants and animals. Dr. Whiteman will reveal how this chemical warfare has not only shaped the diversity of life on Earth, but is also deeply intertwined with our own human experience and all of nature's unique toxins. A toxic larder. Ethanol is unique among nature's toxins because it cannot be easily placed into one of the chemical classes that are usually used to categorize the poisons we are discussing. Conveniently, though, many organisms convert ethanol to mevalinate, a precursor to terpenoids in the terpenoid pathway. So ethanol actually fits right in with terpenoids. Despite my father's alcohol use disorder, and as a light drinker myself, I cannot help but agree with Shakespeare's aphorism that good company, good welcome, good wine can make good people. I certainly think I am more fun when I've had a glass of champagne, but only one. At the same time, although alcohol is the most widely used social lubricant, the consensus is now that overall, any alcohol consumption, even one drink a day, carries health risks, including higher risk of cancer, liver disease, heart disease, and death in accidents. However, for people over 40 who are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease in certain populations, around one half of a drink per day is associated with protecting against heart attacks. Still, Health Canada now recommends no more than two drinks per week, given that the costs outweigh the slight cardiovascular benefits. AUD is the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States. 
The first being tobacco use and the second poor diet and lack of exercise. Binge drinking kills more than 40,000 people per year in the United States alone. Still, I plan on having one glass of champagne to celebrate New Year's Eve with Shane. I partake despite the fact that I know that AUD has found its way into every branch of my family tree. Ethanol, like all the natural toxins we've discussed, didn't evolve with us in mind. Brewer's yeast, which humans domesticated from wild fruit-associated strains, efficiently ferment sugars into ethanol, hence the genus name Saccharomyces, or sugar fungus. Yeast's ability to make ethanol evolved long before humans were around, as a means for these fungi to survive oxygen deprivation deep in rotting fruit. In the absence of oxygen, yeast can burn energy from sugar if they first convert the sugar into ethanol. Brewer's yeast is resistant to the toxic effects of ethanol, while most other microbes are not. So one way of looking at this is that yeast can use the ethanol it makes as a defense against competitor microbes that colonize the fruit too. So for brewer's yeast, ethanol is a poisonous private reserve of energy, a toxic larder. But there's a limit to their resistance. When ethanol levels exceed 20%, even brewer's yeast cells will perish in their own home brew. The Drosophila melanogaster fruit flies I study live through the toxic niche carved out by brewer's yeast. As the old joke goes, time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. And not just any banana will do. The insects prefer ripe fruit that hosts ethanol-producing yeast. Unsurprisingly, fruit flies are resistant to low concentrations of ethanol, like brewer's yeast, but unlike most other insects. In certain concentrations, around 3% alcohol by volume, consuming ethanol even extends their lifespan. Higher concentrations shorten their lives. But the cost-to-benefit ratio flips if parasitoid wasps are lurking. Using a syringe-like structure emerging from its midsection, a female parasitoid wasp injects a single egg into the body of a fruit fly larva, along with a dose of venom and virus-like particles that suppress the fly's immune system. After hatching in the fly larva, the wasp larva consumes the host just as the fly larva is about to form a puparium, which is the fly version of a butterfly's chrysalis. The wasp uses this borrowed pupil case to metamorphose into an adult. Instead of an adult fly emerging from the puparium, an adult wasp emerges from the sarcophagus. Using its immune system, the fly larva can sometimes kill the wasp's egg before it hatches. If that doesn't work, the wasp egg can be pickled in the blood of the fly by the ethanol the fly larva has consumed, but only if ethanol concentrations are at roughly the same as wine, or around 10 to 15 percent. Talk about stress drinking. That, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian associate Noah Whiteman, reading a brief passage from his new book, Most Delicious Poison, the story of nature's toxins from spices to vices. We will be talking to Smithsonian associate Noah Whiteman about his book, his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, and much, much more. we got a packed show, so let's dive into this captivating world of natural toxins with Smithsonian associate Noah Whiteman. Prepare to be amazed, educated, and perhaps even a little unsettled (laughs) as we explore the substances that have shaped our world and continue to influence our lives. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, 
Smithsonian Associate Noah Whiteman. Dr. Noah Whiteman, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. It, it is a pleasure to be talking to you. You, of course, are going to be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of your presentation, Nature's Toxins from Spices to Vices, and the title of your, no, your new book, Most Delicious Poison, is the subject of our conversation today. I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks for reading. Thanks for sharing the book. Congratulations on the book. And um, I'm just uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, likewise, I'm very excited for the Smithsonian Associates presentation. Um, I will have a reading that I will do there, and I'll have a slide deck um, as well to share that sketches out the thesis of the book and the arc of time involved from the origin of land plants and animals to now. I think this is going to be fascinating. What inspired you to do this? Because this is really, this is great work. And I, I think, you know, we're all learning more about natural substances, about um, uh, medicines that come from plants. And, um, and and so I wonder what, what drew you to this? Because especially with a title like Most Delicious Poison, we might think of it a slightly different way. That's right. So the title um, I have, Thanks to Shakespeare. So if you read the book, you'll see exactly where that comes from, uh, which work of Shakespeare. And it it, it uh, perfectly embodies this uh, two-sided nature, I think, of our interaction with chemicals that plants, uh, mushrooms, uh, bacteria, and even some other animals make that we use and abuse. And I guess what motivated me um, was the sudden collision of two parts of my life that um, I had uh, kept apart. And, and one part was my research, which actually focuses on why plants and other organisms make chemicals that I call toxins. Um, and it turns out that many of them do this um, as a defense. So they will make, a, say, a toxin like nicotine uh, to prevent insects from attacking them. It's a, it's a very useful tool um, that has evolved, uh, the plant's ability to make these, that that's the thing that's evolved. And uh, it the plants that do are afforded protection from from insects, at least for a while. Uh, but then, you know, some animals uh, overcome those toxins. Nature finds a way, and through evolution, some insects actually end up specializing on plants that make nicotine. So they overcome them and even use them against their own enemies. So they co-opt the toxins. Um, which I talk about uh, in that specific case in the book uh, on a, a chapter that includes uh, uh, nicotine. Mm -hmm. And um, I would say that, so my research on this area uh, was going forth for a decade and a half. And then uh, in 2017, in late 2017, my father died um, under mysterious circumstances. Um, and it turns out he died from uh, a lifelong overconsumption of some of nature's toxins. And so suddenly I, I began to see my own research in a new light. And it was the collision of those two things uh, that the book was sort of born from. And I wrote a proposal to the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation and was, was unbelievably awarded a fellowship that um, motivated me to actually write the book. And so I took a sabbatical uh, from the University of California, Berkeley, and did it. And so that that was the sort of motivation. I think had those, you know, had he not died in the way he did, I probably would never have written the book, and I probably would not have been inspired uh, to kind of put it together in the way that I did. 
Well, thank you. And again, congratulations on the book. We're, we're sorry to hear about your father's passing. And so I, I know a little bit here in, in my own research, and we'll talk about this, but this was due to alcohol use disorder, AUD. Um, and it, it's a struggle. Uh, certainly, this occurred in my own family. I wonder, though, it influenced you and your work on toxins and, and probably influences you further. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that I never thought of my work really um, as sort of extending from or involving anything related to um, alcohol use disorder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was only when he died that I suddenly saw it as maybe even a subconscious way of, of sort of understanding how that came to be, how his alcohol use disorder came to be and how eventually how he died. Um, and I would say my, my, my past research, uh, before I started studying, you know, chemicals that plants make that they use as defenses, um, was in the Galapagos Islands for my dissertation. Uh, and I worked on birds and their parasites there. So host parasite interactions. And it wasn't until I did my postdoc at Harvard that I started working on plants. And so, um, it was sort of this serendipitous gradual thing, but it's, I call in the book, I call it this green gravity kept pulling me in mm. and, and moving me towards studying plants, um, and, uh, the animals and other organisms that attack them. And so in, in hindsight, it, it, it is a story that is interwoven with my own kind of personal life and upbringing, especially as it relates to my dad and his alcohol use disorder. And so, um, you know, it, it took a while in my mind for these two things to be interwoven. It, 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 it didn't start out that way. Um, but once it did, it was like I couldn't break them apart, really. Mm -hmm. And so now I would say my research is all, it's sort of the motivation for it is these two things are intertwined, I would say. So why humans use and abuse um, chemicals and how animals, many animals do the same, actually. They use them at least. And one of the examples I give that's, I think, um, straightforward for people to understand are things like the monarch butterfly, which is a beautiful insect. Um, and of course, you know, uh, a sort of naive way of approaching why they're beautiful um, is that somehow a creator created them for us to enjoy. <laughs> but the evidence doesn't support that, right? <laughs> we can't disprove that. But what we can show very clearly is that the warning coloration evolved to warn birds, which are the main predators of monarchs, that they are toxic. So if birds consume monarch butterflies, they will vomit. They have an emetic effect. And if they don't vomit, eventually they'll succumb to the poison. So it's their heart poisons that are extremely potent that are found in the, in the monarch. But the most interesting thing, I think, is that the monarch butterfly itself doesn't make the heart poisons. They obtain them from uh, a different life stage when they were caterpillars and they were feeding on milkweed plants. And it's the milkweed plants that make the heart poisons and the caterpillars eat them, the leaves. And when they do that, they're able to sequester those toxins and hold them in their bodies through metamorphosis. So the butterflies that emerge are loaded with these heart poisons that uh, allow them to fly, you know, from the prairies of Ontario uh, <laughs> all the way down to uh, the mountaintops of Michoacan, Mexico, where they where they overwinter, and they fly down there relatively protected from predators. So these butterflies, you know, in a way, are, are doing something similar to what we're doing. They're using chemicals, right, to sort of escape their demons, and uh, of course, we're choosing to do that. Right. When we begin to experiment with these chemicals 
Um, but then in, in many cases, right, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, a gravity that we can't escape in the mm -hmm. case of things like ethanol. But the other corollary is that uh, the same kinds of heart poisons are made by things like foxglove plants, which um, are used and were used, those chemicals, to treat heart conditions like congestive heart failure, um, and now they're used uh, to treat arrhythmias. And those toxins people have probably heard of, they're called digitoxin and digoxin. Mm. And foxgloves are in the digitalis genus. And so a concoction made from them was called digitalin. And that turned out to be probably the first clinical trial in the European medical literature by William Withering um, was on foxglove to treat what was called dropsy, which is congestive heart failure, buildup of fluid in the lungs from congestive heart failure. So these things, if you think about it, um, are, is it that different? What a monarch is mm -hmm. doing, right? Mm -hmm. Co-opting these toxins that are made by plants. You know, they're, they're doing it innately. We are doing it sort of by choice and through culture, right? That, that information flows along with our genes, but through culture um, in parallel. So that, these are the themes in the book, the, the, the two-sided nature of it all, mm -hmm. um, the co-option of it and how animals and humans um, have both uh, used these things uh, for our own devices. Mm. It's so fascinating. I, I just am smiling. I, <laughs> my wife and I planted, I'll, I'll just personalize this slightly here. My wife and I planted a pollinator garden and we ended up with a lot of bees, which was absolutely the goal, but we actually ended up with uh, a couple of monarch, um, I guess chrysalis uh, that, that actually did result in uh, monarch butterflies being born, just a couple of them, not not a great many of them, but it was one of the biggest joys we've experienced as we watched these things kind of come to life and we planted milkweed. And so we're, we're out there trying to, um, you know, I suppose do our part as many are as certainly as, as you are. And I want to talk about plants for just a second, in particular, um, the toxin capsaicin. Uh, in chili peppers, because that actually is, uh, that's a toxin that helps plants. And I, I wonder if you'd describe that and its role and what it means for nature as a whole to have that present. Sure. So capsaicin uh, is this compound that we love or love to hate, depending on the person. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it activates um, a, a particular receptor in our bodies Um that is called TRPV1. So that's expressed in our mouths, in nerves in our mouths. Also elsewhere in our body, it's expressed. And it activates this sensation um, as if it's heat that we're, that we're sort of detecting. And that's interesting because those particular nerves that express the TRPV1 receptor, uh, that receptor is capable of detecting capsaicin, so sort of noxious chemical heat, and then thermal heat separately. So that's that's very neat, I think, in a way. There are these hmm. dual these these dual dual purpose um, channels receptors in our so it nerves. So retains does it retain the heat or it generates? No, it, it generates the sensation of heat. It generates right? a, okay, yeah. wow. Yeah, so it uh, so that's why we start sweating, yeah. right? You know, and that sort of thing. So those same um, nerves are going to be triggered by thermal heat. The same receptor can be triggered by thermal heat and right. and sort of this chemical that triggers a heat like feeling. Um, and so that's why your skin might get hot, you might get flushed, you know, and it may explain why we like it because with pain <laughs> comes pleasure, right? It comes relief. <laughs> right. It comes relief from pain. Yeah. And that relief from pain can be a sought after experience, right? So that's interesting. 
So, but if you are, say, a mouse and you are chewing on a chili pepper, you're going to stop chewing probably. Um, and that is because mice also have the same receptor we have because we are relatively closely related to mice, right? Our common ancestor had this TRPV1 channel. Um, and uh, capsaicin is a compound that the plants do not need to live and reproduce. In other words, you know, if we planted chili peppers and knocked out the genes to make capsaicin and planted them inside, they would do just fine. In fact, they might even have more seeds than ones that don't have them. But that changes when we introduce natural enemies like the mice, like caterpillars, like bacteria that infect the, the plants, like fungi that infect the plants into the equation. And plants that have things like capsaicin uh, do better in the presence of enemies because they get eaten less. And that should make complete sense, right? If you think about your own response to capsaicin. Most children do not like capsaicin, right? This mm -hmm. is a learned preference if we, you know, this, this idea that we like it. It doesn't happen uh, sort of on its own. And um, there's an interesting um, thing going on here with peppers in particular. And that is that, well, first of all, you know, almost all peppers, right, are native to uh, North, Central, and South America. So they are, they're really sort of a, um, a Western hemisphere kind of phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And um, the capsaicin works um, as an antifungal. That's one thing. So it, we know from studies that people have done in the field that capsaicin protects the chili peppers from fungal attack. So that's one thing it does, but it probably protects them from a lot of different things, including herbivory, things that would eat the seeds, things that would eat the fruit, from insects to bacteria. Um, but the peppers are brightly colored, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So unlike the monarch, bright colors in nature can mean several things. One thing they can mean is that they're signaling to a particular animal, right, that can see the color red. Most chilies are red or yellow, right, or orange. And, okay, we can see those colors. Lots of other animals can, too. Um, and what is in the fruits of those peppers? Seeds. And what does the pepper plant want from the perspective of natural selection? To disperse itself, right? How, how, what would be the best way to do that? Well, a great way is to get an animal to move you, <laughs> your seeds. And so what the chili peppers have done is evolve the ability to signal to birds primarily to disperse their seeds. So birds love eating chilies. They ingest the fruits and they poop the seeds out. But, this, but the bird might have flown 10 miles by the time it poops the seeds out. So mm -hmm. from the perspective of dispersing the seeds, that's a great thing. The amazing thing is birds do not perceive capsaicin as, as spicy. They have lost the ability to perceive capsaicin as mm -hmm. spicy. So their TRPV1 channel doesn't work in the same way as all the other things I was talking about, all the other animals, including us. So it looks like chilies and birds are sort of, you know, chilies are signaling to birds and sort of via this private channel of communication. So like, eat me, I'm sweet. And we know peppers are sweet. We can taste that, right? But we taste the capsaicin. They don't. Mm -hmm. So they just get the goodness um, they don't, they're not, uh, it's not aversive to them. So you can think of the fruit dispersal part as, you know, one reason why the, uh, chilies, uh, these peppers grow so large, they're very well adapted to bird dispersal, but at the same time, it really benefits the pepper because all the other organisms are going to find <laughs> the capsaicin aversive pretty much. 
Um, and so it's this very amazing kind of dance that the pepper plants are doing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like between being eaten and wanting to be eaten. So, right, the fruits, they want the fruits to be eaten. They don't want the leaves or the roots to be eaten, right? Because they need those to make the fruits. So where and how these chemicals are placed in the plant um, really is um, a way for us to think about what the plant, what natural selection has done to the plant, right? So they're going to invest heavily in these toxins in tissues that are really important to be protected from attack. But then sometimes some animals, for example, the birds, right, are sort of unaware of what's going on. And that's great for the pepper. So they're able to disperse the seeds for the, the pepper plant without the negative consequences of the capsaicin. So there's a little example of how both complicated it can be, but mm-hmm. really also how simple it is if mm-hmm. you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, right, the capsaicin is not there for us. It's there mm-hmm. to benefit the plant. But then, um, you know, there's always a cost to these things in the nectar or the fruits because they need pollinators and fruit dispersers, right? So they have to be very careful about where they put these things and who can perceive them. Yeah, I, I just, I love this. It, the this this wonderful dance as you describe you know the fruit dispersal the natural selection how it's how it's protecting and it also does that well there are also elements uh, in nature saffron is one that is is that you discuss in the book right. that has um, a, a natural toxin perhaps but but yep. also is medicinal mm-hmm. and is it possible because I did I did read that that there's a uh, effect uh, that's Prozac-like. It, could it replace some of these medicines, some of these uh, highly um, distilled medicines that are created? Yeah. So, you know, a corollary would be St. John's wort. I don't know if you've heard okay, of St. Sure, John's sure. wort. Yeah. Yep, and that yep. is also used and has been now uh, subjected to um, double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trials, which are the gold standard and really the only way we can say it works like Prozac, right? So um, that's what I would first say. So all of these things have to be subjected to trials like that um, in order to sort of test their safety and efficacy. And what's interesting is that, um, yes, as you mentioned, um, the field, uh, the, the crocus, right, saffron, um, produces saffron, and which are from the flowers of the plant. The actual flowers are harvested. And that's what why those little threads, those little kind of orange-red threads in your saffron container are so precious because they're collected by you know, fingers of somebody is pulling those out of the plant. And um, there are, um, I would say, sort of natural defense chemicals um, called crocins that uh, these crocuses make. And one of them breaks down into saffronal um, when we chew the saffron or when, say, uh, a caterpillar or a mouse chews the saffron. Um, And those chemicals are biologically active. And um, there have been a number of small studies, including uh, uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials, but small in number in terms of the number of people involved and the number of studies done in Iran and um, where it's used as widely as a folk remedy there for lots of different uh, maladies. And there is evidence that um, safranal and among other um, chemicals in saffron has Prozac-like effects, you know, sort of has anti-depression, um, OCD um, effects. Now, um, will it eventually replace Prozac? Well, I think the proof is in the pudding, right? More time, uh, more studies are required to, to sort of address that as they've been done in St. John's Ward. 
So I would say that the jury is still out, but you know, it's, it's important to remember that there's no reason why it couldn't, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it, if it is as safe as, as an effective or maybe more so. So, but the, the sort of two-sidedness to all this, there's no reason that it, you know, it should work. There's a reason that it shouldn't, we have to try it and test it out. But it does go back to this other idea that folk remedies that stem from indigenous knowledge holders often is the starting point for, you know, most of the natural products that we use and ones that are even refined that we wouldn't think of that way, right? So um, I would say that that's the other theme in the book, that indigenous and local knowledge holders are often the ones that um, have already done some of the sort of testing, right, uh, for these, uh, especially plants. And then later, those plants are then, you know, the compounds from those plants are isolated. And then these these sort of, quote unquote, modern drugs arise from them. But this is just really important to point out that, you know, the indigenous knowledge holders and local knowledge holders are often the source of many of our most coveted drugs. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. Dr. Noah Whiteman is our guest today. Dr. Whiteman will be appearing and presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out our show notes today for more information about Dr. Whiteman, his new book titled Most Delicious Poison, and his upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. We'll have links to Dr. Whiteman's work at noahwhiteman.org, as well as other links and information. The book is getting great reviews, Dr. Whiteman. I've seen several really praiseworthy notes. One I thought really, really struck me. It's from Daniel Lieberman, who's the author of The Story of the Human Body. Dr. Lieberman says, Daniel Lieberman says, I wish I could travel the world with Noah Whiteman and enjoy firsthand his deep and eclectic knowledge of the thousands of compounds that plants evolved to defend themselves against predators. I thought that was really just a great uh, comment on on the book and, and your work and and I want to talk about um, one other related subject, kind of going beyond um, the conversation we had about saffron replacing medicines. Are there are there other concerns? Are there ethical concerns, perhaps, about using natural toxins, um, maybe addictive ones that you know, like morphine, that 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 occur in in this conversation that we should be aware of? Yes, you know, I I think. Um all of these things, when they they enter sort of the our human world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we can think about uh, psychedelics, for example, which mm-hmm. are having a moment, right? Mm-hmm. And and seen not only as um, panaceas for treating especially certain drug use disorders, um, but also recreationally, right? Many more people seem to be using them. And so uh, the question, there are many ethical questions about this, and and one is. Um, you know, first of all, where are the drugs coming from, right? 
And as we know, that that is a major geopolitical kind of issue, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one question. Um, the other is from whom, you know, uh, who 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 uh, which knowledge holders uh, gave rise to this information and what you know, are they being are they benefiting from this discussion? Um, the other is, of course, safety. Right. Um, is, is it safe to take these chemicals and is it effective? You know, if it's a medical uh, use. And those things have to be assessed in a very professional uh, clinical setting, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a context that uh, ethicists are involved, but also medical doctors, mm-hmm. um, pharmacologists, et cetera, right? Because, you know, and, and so these, these things that are out there, this idea that um, this appeal to nature fallacy, which I talk about a lot mm-hmm. in the book, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, natural things are good just because they're natural, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the appeal to nature fallacy. We know that's not true. So, for example, you know, morphine is a good example of that. It's like, yes, it's a it's a great drug for relieving pain, you know, maybe one of the best still, right? Opioids and you know, opiates and synthetic opioids are among the most effective uh, pain relieving drugs for major, you know, acute pain and even chronic pain. The problem is that a subset of the population is very susceptible to opioid use disorder, as we now know. And so what sounds fine initially, like fentanyl, for example, right, there were many reasons why it was developed and was used sort of instead of morphine. There were lots of pharmacological reasons for this. Well, it turns out, though, that some of those same reasons might be why it's so problematic, right, in terms of its addictive potential. Well, congrats on all your work. And uh, I'll just have to say selfishly, we'd love to have you back. Congrats on this book. Again, the title is Most Delicious Poison, the story of nature's toxins from spices to vices. Dr. Noah Whiteman's been our guest. We'll have links so that our audience can find out more about Dr. Whiteman and his upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. But again, thank you for your time today. Thanks for being generous with the reading. Congrats on the book and my best to you. We'll look forward to seeing you uh, at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Thanks so much, Paul. Uh, These were great questions and it was a pleasure to be with you and your audience. And I really look forward to this Smithsonian Associates event. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. To find out more about all of today's stories or to view our extensive back catalog of previous shows, simply visit notold-better.com. Join us again next time as we deep dive into some of the most fascinating real-life stories from across the world, all focused on this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on community radio. My thanks to author and biologist, Smithsonian Associate Noah Whiteman, who will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. And the title of his presentation is Nature's Toxins from Spices to Vices. Please check out our website for more details about Noah Whiteman's upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. My thanks to the Smithsonian for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe. And let's talk about better, the not old better show. Thanks, everybody. And we will see you next week. 